0: Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. We have a great show for you today. Don Finley will be on the program. He's a software developer whose company, Findustries, provides consultation and development for software of all types. But he's especially working on the new frontiers of AI and blockchain. So he's kind of a hot commodity right now, given the recent mania over those two. Uh, I met Don at a conference we were on a panel together about blockchain, and when I asked him about Bitcoin, he kind of laughed, like, you know, we talk about that. <laughs> we talk about cryptocurrency, blockchain, AI, neural nets, all kinds of super techy, super interesting stuff. Don's a great guy, and I hope you enjoy their conversation. Let's go. Thank you very much for coming on the program. I really appreciate that you took the time. And uh, I know, you know, there's a lot to talk about. We were on a panel a little while back for the seven by twenty-four conference and we connected a little bit on the crypto mining stuff, but there's just looking at your your bio and everything, there's a lot more that you do. It's actually I saw that you went to Ohio University.
1: Yeah, no, Ohio University. I used to I live was... out in
0: Columbus, that's why I bring it up. I, you know, oh, really? I I know it pretty well. Yeah, and my brother actually went to Ohio University for film.
1: No way! Uh, so... Yeah, there's a great film program down there. Yeah. And I, I just gotta say, thank you for having me. It was uh, excellent being on the panel with you at twenty four seven thing. And yeah, I'm glad we're having a chance to have this discussion too.
0: So, what did you you studied computer science there? Or, um... yeah, yeah, it
1: was all computer science. I got close to a mathematics degree as well, but really it was computer science. And I, I don't know if you're familiar, but computer science in some programs is all theory. Yeah. Uh, and so that was really my background. And then I had a focus in artificial intelligence.
0: Right. Well, I mean, that's that's as good a jumping off point as anything to, to really get in the meat of things. So, you know, for a long time, artificial intelligence really didn't seem like it was, you know, at least in terms of neural nets and things like that, it wasn't really uh, reaping the benefits that were promised. And more recently, that's come back into vogue, like gangbusters that, you know, so many things are running on convolutional uh, neural nets and stuff. So is that something that wow. you are familiar with? Like, is, is that part of your basis is, is neural nets? And if so, can you talk about what they are and how they work?
1: Yeah, so neural nets kind of, they're derived from, or at least the name is derived from how neurons fire in our brains. And if you take a, a single neuron, it has inputs and then it has output at, or yeah, outputs. And what ends up happening is it collects inputs and if they hit a certain threshold, it then fires off an output to you know subsequent neurons down the line. And so essentially what it's doing is it's taking information in making some sort of judgment based on its own little mathematical idea of how information flows and it's spitting that output. the the power of it is when you combine, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these neurons together and they have various triggers along the lines of like what activates them, what doesn't and the weights that go into that they can find very difficult patterns and make it rather easy to resolve so like a a straight neural network you can feed it in images of dogs and then you feed it in an image of cat and it will tell you that there's a difference between those Um, so it's the power of it is is in its its model But then if you go into like, well, how does it learn? That's kind of the cool thing. It's also a mystery, right? Like you feed things into a neural network, you get output out. We know how to judge the answer. We know how to format the input so that it can learn better. But the way that a neural net learns is it goes, shoot in the input, you have an expected output that's your target. And then the neural network spits out an answer. And if it's close to the answer you're looking for, or it's the right answer, you can go back and figure out how the math worked to get to that correct answer and strengthen those connections between the neurons in the neural network. The same goes for if the answer is wrong, what you do is you weaken the connections that create that right answer or that wrong answer. And so what ends up happening is over time through just you know training of the network, no human intervention, it it actually gets smarter and finds more detailed patterns.
0: That's really interesting. You know, I have been, you know, I went to school and I studied computer science to some extent, but um, you know, I was a, a Java guy, and recently I've, I've started learning Python or teaching myself Python. And one of the early lessons in the in the curriculum I was taking was to make a neural net, and yeah. I didn't realize how little code. Actually goes into it. Like you can make it very complicated, but this was just a a math learning, so it was just a matrix manipulation, and I I was kind of amazed. It's like you know, there's there's stuff behind the scenes, but just how little it took to actually make this thing smart enough to do math equations. So is that part of the appeal in general?
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean that's it's definitely like the hands off approach to you know getting a computer to solve problems. There are, it's, it's easy to create, it's hard to perfect, I, I think is a, right. a good sort of saying to this. Um, the models themselves, actually, let me take a step back. When you're creating a neural network, the model is, is important, but equally important, and if not more important, is how you're structuring your, your answer as well as the inputs. So how do you make it easy for the network to learn? And I, I kind of equate it to you know, really teaching children how to do anything. You wanna, you wanna set it up in a way so that they can be rewarded for getting the right answer and that there's you know, little consequences for getting the wrong answer or performing poorly in the situation. But it's more about you know, creating an environment in which it makes it easy for that individual or that network to learn. And so how do you set up the input? How do you set up the data so that it's easy for the computer to find the pattern? And even though you may not know the patterns are there, you can structure your solution in a way that makes it mathematically easier for the program to figure out what the patterns are.
0: Hmm. Well, and, and also finding the training set, right? That's, that's one of the real problems today. And, you know, one of the – <laughs> I read recently that the the biggest – uh, or the growing job field in AI is just figuring out how to train, like almost being a teacher of the systems. Is that something you've you've come in contact with too? Uh,
1: yeah, no, and it's – everybody loves to talk about, like, the structure of a model or if you go into, you know, how people are solving problems, they talk about, like, how many, how many layers of neurons, what's the structure of that. Do you go, like, a convolutional neural network to a recurrent neural network back to, like, how many – how many layers of, of this pattern do you go through? But being able to structure the problem up front and feed it in in a way that makes it effective for the network to learn is, is crucial. If you go back to, you know, essentially the core data science work that people were doing, you know, 10 years ago, 20, 30, 40, 50, uh, ETL jobs, you know, the extra, extract, transform, load. It's about understanding your data and what your data means. To you and then creating it in a way that allows you to to feed it into those networks, but the cool thing is is like the the idea of neurons and neural networks has been around since I want to say I think it was the early sixties in which were yeah yeah, um, I may be off by ten years one way or the other, but yeah it's it's an idea that's been around Just we' never had the computational power until the proliferation of GPUs. Mm-hmm. to be able to tackle these problems.
0: So so where do you fit? I mean, what has what your work been in, in, in relation to AI recently or, or machine learning?
1: So we have a, a couple projects that we've either launched in the last year or are working on. Some deal with the prediction of price movements and securities, so like stock forecasting and creation of indicators that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we've also done work in object recognition and then a little bit of work in OCR as well, but that's a problem that's that's really been solved or solved to a good extent, and that we can take right. frameworks off the shelf and use those. And then we're working on uh, another forecasting algorithm for just in time, uh, let's say just in time delivery of services. Huh. Yeah, so-, so we're taking a lot of different a lot of different sensor readings from various locations and sites, and then tying that in with other. Um, sources of information like let's say weather or job reports to come up with predictions for when you know actual physically people will have to be there in order to perform services.
0: How did you come up with those opportunities? Is that something that was brought to you or is that just a segment of the market that you realized was, was a real important one?
1: So yeah we there are opportunities that were brought to us you know my company fin Industries. Does custom software development, and we're mostly focused on artificial intelligence, and then also blockchain, which is how you and I got introduced. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll
0: talk about that in a little bit. That's yeah. that's a big one.
1: Exactly. Um, um, so yeah, we just do really custom software, and it allows us to help out companies that either have have a deep bench of software expertise and need to get into some of these technologies, or we end up working a lot with like manufacturers who may not have software expertise, but see that they need to take some of the data they have and turn it into actual knowledge for people to uh, make decisions on. Right.
0: So it seems like just the AI piece, it's really a boom time, I think, for that. And it's a it's a real difficulty finding the segment of the market and the actual how it would be helpful to get AI out there. So is there anything else that you see out there in the market that. Uh, maybe you don't want to say <laughs> it's up to you. You don't want to give away your secret sauce. But but applications of of machine learning AI that uh, could be a big deal. Is there anything that scares you? You know, is there anything out there?
1: Yeah. So I think the I I wouldn't say that there's anything that truly scares me about AI. But what's out there today and what's actually getting prolifer- proliferated is areas of customer service and helping to customize. And different service applications for individuals so an example of this is when you talk to a chat bot you know sometimes it's a human sometimes it's actually an AI bot but being able to take that information and then taking the end product and being able to customize it for you and one area I see this as being extremely helpful would be in the healthcare space in regards to being able to pick insurance for you know your particular situation but then doing it at scale to where you can always have an expert available to you uh, based on the criteria that, you know, you've essentially had this conversation with an AI or filled out a few forms that give you a little bit of a recommendation. Um, Where I think AI is somewhat scary. And I think this kind of plays into technology uh, is just how do we, how do we take anybody who has been either displaced by technology or isn't quite caught up to it the opportunity to be retrained either by creating corporate training programs or by you know some other startup slash government institutes that would be able to help bring people towards uh, a higher tech world because hmm. like, if you think about it, we're either going to be telling the computers what to do or the computer's going to tell us what to do right and if we can create an AI that you know helps humans learn more effectively
0: right tailored uh, learning, yeah
1: exactly. Like understanding where you're hitting snags, or you know, seeing that information and being able to either highlight it to a human teacher or being able to help you get past that hump uh, would be would be amazing.
0: Right. Well, so you know, a lot of these things, like you, you talk about uh, tailoring health information, and uh, you know, I'm not an expert on any of this. I I just am interested in it. But it seems to me that that there's two different parts to the sort of AI equation. There's the algorithmic part that is uh, more about taking data and not through a learning process, but through a sort of structured algorithmic process to get the best data out there. And then there's the other type, which is actually taking that learning data and figuring out a solution on its own. Uh, I'm not explaining that as well, but is that an interplay that you have to work with of, of having a system that is programmed as smart or having a system that Learns throughout that. And maybe you can uh, explain that a little bit better than I can because I don't know if I did the best job. But yeah, uh, no, you you're. About
1: that a little bit? I, I mean, you're kind of fitting into it, right? We we understand that there's a step by step process of ensuring that your plane is ready to take off, right? And that we require that there's experts who are able to do that process, and who are required to sign off on it. Now, even though that's a a step by step kind of process that people go through, and it's something you can train an individual on, it would take, I mean, it could take a significant amount of time for a computer to learn that pattern just on its own, even if it was codified in a rather simple way. But that's what the AI systems of like the 1980s, so late 70s getting into the 80s, they were expert systems. And it was about codifying like human logic and their decision points Mm -hmm. in regards to how they went about decisions and a lot of research was done into you know fuzzy logic and the codification of these business processes down the lines and that's that's an interesting area because I think it does sit nicely besides the work of like deep neural networks but when it comes to to image recognition or real-time detection of objects, expert systems always seem to lack in sophistication, or being able to handle, you know, a wide variety and generalize to uh, different environments. Right. So I see that I see the AI world of today and deep learning uh, kind of building upon that foundation of what the what the people learned in you know the past around expert systems. Now, granted, I. I work with startups as well, and some of the things they're doing with AI have an expert systems component to it Mm -hmm. because what it does is it allows you to supplement the information that you're getting from, like, a chatbot in a deep uh, neural net type situation with, you know, clear definitive answers to certain scenarios that can really help reduce the training curve and increase the, you know, the end consumer satisfaction. So it's like a a mixed situation today. Mm
0: Now we have to take a break. We'll be back in a second with Don Finley and Good Data. Today's episode is brought to you by Green Lane Design. Green Lane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, from small server rooms to major data centers for Fortune 100 companies. GLD is also expert at computational fluid dynamics simulation mouthful. Uh, that's computer simulations of airflow and data centers. If you would be interested, go to greenlanedesign.com. Click on contact and mention the podcast. And we're back. We were just talking about the difference between neural nets and expert systems that are pre-programmed to solve a problem. And well, it's, it's interesting too. Some of that, uh, expert, um, system, it, it may be harder to game. Because I, I was reading recently about a few things where AI can, uh, like, a, an aggressive attack on AI can actually very easily subvert the, you know, neural net machine learning process by something that looks innocuous. So it's it's actually fairly easy to to attack it, even though it's like 99.9% effective. That one percent, that 0.1% is very easy to do. So is is that something that? You have to deal with, or you know, in, in the case of image recognition, they can make a I think it was a helicopter look like a rifle, even though to the naked eye it is absolutely 100% a, a helicopter. But they they have some somewhat invisible line through it that the computer detects as a rifle. So it, you know that that seems to extend on to translation software or, or a lot of the other sort of computer you know the the machine learning applications. Can be gained. Is that something that you see? Is that something you worry about? Is that something that you know is a trend in the marketplace to to figure out ways to mitigate that?
1: It's interesting. I haven't seen that paper, but if you could send it to me, I'd absolutely love to read
0: it. <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, I will. It's,
1: not, it's just it's fascinating as far as the idea. Um, have you heard of adversarial gains?
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but can so, you explain it, please? Sorry.
1: Yeah, and so the basic idea is you have you have a, a an artificial intelligence algorithm and it is set to identify helicopters, right? And then you have an adversarial artificial intelligence that is feeding its input into your AI that you want to identify helicopters. And so the whole time that the adversarial bot is, or what its goal is, is to trick your main artificial intelligence program. So that's, what's interesting is, in the scenario of like, it's a helicopter, but it's actually a rifle or it's a rifle, but it's actually a helicopter. And like your main AI can't differentiate it. You've come up with a situation with your, which your adversary has won. Um, But the the way that those algorithms work is when the adversary wins, it, it does changes on the main AI so that it no longer occurs and that it basically recovers from that fault um the cool thing about these is like they literally start as uh the inputs and the outputs right so the adversary is something like 50 percent of the inputs to the the main ai it's actually given legitimate images as well uh that it can work on but the adversary its main goal is to increase the number of times that it gets a false positive uh or create yeah or false False positive or false negative, so just false situations inside of the main AI, and like that work, I think, will definitely help to reduce the amount of times that people can manipulate uh, various images, because we'll start to increase the the subset of or the the images that are in that set to include the ones that you know it, it's a helicopter, but it looks like a rifle to some people. Mm-hmm. Um, so really no, cool. So within it- the Sorry, the other thing that I was going to say is a lot of when you train an algorithm on how to like properly speak English or write English, um, it's not like we handed a grammar book and say, hey, go in and learn these rules and then you'll be creative, you'll be able to identify these things, you'll write movies for us. Um, The work being done today has identified that all of our biases we carry as human beings, whether it's toward other nations, towards races, towards sexes, um, gets carried over into the artificial intelligence because it it reads our literature, it reads our um, right. our work, and it, it it doesn't assign meaning to it, but it just sees the patterns and it replicates those patterns. And so I think that's a a sorry disadvantage for us to give these algorithms our our own biases especially when we're all so cognizant of being able to eliminate bias anyways. So.
0: Right. I, there was, there was a unique. book. Yeah. There there was a book that came out recently by Kathy O'Neill uh, called Weapons of Math Destruction. that I think it, it sort of dovetails into what you're talking about, where uh, they found all these um, notions of algorithmic bias, where bad data was put in, uh, and then it's being used in the real world and it's actually hurting people. And it's healthcare data, it's policing, it's it's there's a lot of examples of this where these uh machine learning systems were put into place. And then instead of helping the problem, they've actually, you know, engendered additional bias. But yeah. they kind of can cover their ass because <laughs> everybody trusts computers to a certain extent. Um so it 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 kind of gives this cover like, oh it's it's objective where Actually, it was fed subjective data, so then it it creates a subjective system. Is that sort of what you're talking about? And and uh, is that's that
1: very well that's said? to
0: worry about. Okay. Yeah. It's a good book. You should, it's a very good book, actually. Um, Kathy O'Neill, Weapons of Math Destruction. Everybody should read it. I think it's it's one of the big deals of our time. Is is to uh, get over that hump. That's um, fine. But uh, I there 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 are so many things that are out there to worry about. And it's not necessarily killer robots out there. It's also uh, privacy intrusion based on AI. It's, uh, you know, uh, ways of uh, manipulating people into um, doing things they might not otherwise do. Um, So, you know, I, I wonder if you have any Uh, sorry to to bring it back to the negative stuff, but if if you have anything that um, you see in the industry that kind of worries you about the direction that AI is going.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say it's the direction, but the the speed at which the changes will occur. Like Mm -hmm. we, I mean, I have uh, colleagues in the industry and they've been working on uh, artificial intelligence in call centers. And so what they can do is they can take uh, every call that's ever come into a call center and then figure out the patterns of those calls. Like, why are people calling? What was the resolution? How do we get them to that resolution? And then they can spit out changes in how calls are handled so that they can reduce the number of calls that actually get to an agent by 60%. Wow. And so we're talking like you could have a call center open for just a year And this company can come in and help you uh, help the organization figure out how to improve. But at the same time, your workforce is now, you know, half of what it was prior. Wow. Uh, And so I think that the speed at which we'll see those things come through um, is going to have changes that will impact our society at a far higher level than, you know, what's going to happen with a a self-driving car. And that's also another industry, like once we get self-driving trucks, truck drivers are one of the, the it's one of the highest, um, I'm trying to think of the word. It's the highest the number of Most employees. Thank yeah, you. Right. Most employees are truck drivers, like, which is absolutely astounding, but I, I never would have guessed that.
0: Right. Yeah, me neither. I, I read that too, yeah. It's, it's I guess the, the correct way to say it, which I, I butcher this stuff all the time, but it's the largest plurality of jobs anybody Thank understands you. that because that's that's what I'm trying to say <laughs> um but uh yeah it's it's the the sort of biggest uh uh employer is truck drivers, and you know it it's a shame that all those jobs might go away in x number of years um, yeah, but also, so like uh, i was
1: I, so I got involved in internet of things before it was called Internet of things as well which um which was a lot of fun, uh, came with a lot, of, a lot of headaches. But in the end, we were able to take you know, a major Fortune 50 company and remove a third of their trucks from the street. Wow. So huge savings when it comes to the maintenance, gas, and just environmentally, amazing savings for that company. Uh, but at the same time, like we didn't, we didn't have a workforce reduction. Because of that project, there was uh, there's other work inside of that organization that needed to be done and that was still profitable for them to be doing without immediately going and saying, you know, we're just going to eliminate, you know, a third of the jobs or a quarter of the jobs because we no longer have those trucks on the road. Um, They worked on they used those resources to improve the business and grow that business instead of as a cost savings measure and I I'm not familiar enough with truck driving or with uh with call center operations a little bit to say like what would happen, but I can't see that kind of performance change as well. And so if yeah. you get a 50% reduction in calls, I could easily see a third of that workforce being uh removed.
0: Right. Yeah, it's really hard to say what the the long-term impact is because there there's always there's always space for somebody to find a job. It just might be a different job, and and we don't know what sectors are going to open up that we had no idea ten years ago or or ten years from now what that sector is going to be. So there could be a huge need for human beings soon, like training AI. That's a that's the, why that's a growth sector is because we haven't figured out as well how to get AI to train AI. Humans are still required. So it, it's it'll be really interesting. I, I you know I I try not to worry about it, but it's really going to be. Uh, an interesting world when all these things change. And you, like you said, the, the pace of change is interesting too. And actually, I want to use that to segue into uh, crypto uh, because, you know, that's a world that changes so fast and uh, is sort of still in its infancy um, compared, you know, AI has been around for a long time, but crypto really hasn't been around, it has only been around since 2008. Uh, about or, or, you know, maybe even uh, later than that in some ways. But, you know, how are you interfacing with uh, crypto, cryptocurrency and blockchain right now?
1: Yeah, so we our blockchain work is is mostly focused on um, either private blockchain applications or uh, I'd say tokenized work. So I've kind of taken a step back from the straight crypto plays. Uh, we did an i c o last year with one company, and um, you know moderately successful. We're helping out another organization uh in getting their platform up after they did an i c o last year and raised some funds but along the lines of uh blockchain today, I'm really interested in the use cases that can come out of uh, out of that space in helping you know really people retain ownership of their data. Companies retain ownership of their information and you know enabling really the reduction of third parties uh, that are involved in the transition of information. So mostly looking at we have one project that's going on with a financial institution and the, you know the spreading of research reports. And so how do they retain ownership of that information as it goes out and how do they know where it's going? Uh, but they want to have it so that everybody else can also participate in this network of information without them being the key owner of the platform or of the tool. Uh, And so that's really where blockchain steps in is to allow the decentralization of these applications so that it isn't, you know, one party maintains Mm -hmm. control of everything.
0: Yeah, there is sort of a, well, I'm saying that there's sort of a crisis of trust uh, you look at yeah. Facebook and the issues that are happening there, and so that there is a real opportunity with blockchain to create trust and to create trust without third parties and Would you mind talking about that briefly? <laughs> I know that this is such a big topic but but how especially in a private setting where it 's not the public blockchain but but how does blockchain enable trust in in the way that you 're talking?
1: Yeah, and it's kind of it's interesting. In a private blockchain solution, every person who's on that network has some little bit of credence of trust. Right? Like in order to be put onto the network, somebody verifies you, somebody validates that you can participate in this environment. Uh and so it what it where the level of trust then goes from there is I'm no longer I I don't have one party that's responsible for maintaining the trust of the network or the trust of the transaction. The trust of the transactions in blockchain situation is done by all the nodes involved and that they equally are a part of the solution of maintaining the reputation of that network. And so each node, when they publish their chain and they publish their answers, to the, you know, the difficult problems that get faced or to the, um, you know, the proof of time elapsed type consensus mechanisms that we use for, uh, private chains, they allow the, they allow trust to be built because there's an agreement among the parties. There isn't somebody in the center saying, you know what, this is actually what happened. And you know what, everybody just has to abide by it, even if they're, um, is dissent among the group um, with a private blockchain everything's transparent. Even though know, you may not see the information, you can see the the result of how the transaction came to be, and that it was validated by you know third parties associated with those uh, those other nodes that were involved as well.
0: So, would those generally be companies that are are part of that private? Uh, blockchain or, or would it, it you know in, in the public blockchain it's anybody in a yeah, private can have, blockchain situation it would be it would be tend to be companies or or actors like that
1: yeah we tend to deal with with actors like that um, and so i'm thinking uh, one of the prime examples is supply chain management uh, and if you think about it like food supply right going from the farm to your table There's specific requirements that everybody in the United States has to follow as far as the tracking of that. That tracking goes from the grower to some distribution to probably another distribution point to the grocery store to your house. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that supply chain, there's a number of points of reconciliation for that individual tomato. So what ends up coming about is you you have different systems at each one of the suppliers at the grower, at the grocery store. Um, For anybody who has facilitated it, they have their own system that tracks the reconciliation. And so if there's ever a question of where did this tomato come from, and hopefully we never have to answer or ask that question, but it happens and we need to, we need to have good reliable information on this. You have to follow that tomato from the, the person to the grocery store they bought it to, contact the grocery store, contact the distributor that they get their tomatoes from, contact that distributor, that distributor will tell you where he got the tomato from. And the distributor before that will do the exact same thing down the line until they get to the the farm that it actually was grown to, grown at. Um, with all of those points of reconciliation, there's also opportunity for failure of the system. Mm-hmm. And what blockchain allows you to do is essentially tie a token to that tomato at the time that it was grown. And when it gets passed off to the uh, first distributor, they're taking that token with them and then they're marking you know, that they handed it off to the, the, another person. So instead of I have my own system, you have your own system, we're both going to update the same ledger for where that tomato has been going. Uh, And in in that type of environment, it may be a private chain, but what you're doing is you're increasing trust in the information because not only am I seeing the same data that you're seeing, we're all ensuring that that tomato has accurate information when it gets to the next checkpoint. So, like in today's system, you could have a tomato that ends up getting into, you know, this distributor's hand, but somehow miss the last distributor's information. And so, with that tomato, you might have lost the information for where it was actually grown.
0: So, you know, it 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 does seem though like there are other systems that could do that. That there are that if people had some kind of other unified database or it would probably be, uh, managed by a third party. Uh, but if there was some kind of centralized database it could it could also do something similar so what is the advantage of blockchain in that sort of the situation that there is no third party
1: yes it's that there's no third party and also you've simplified the steps for reconciliation okay because essentially if if i'm creating a transaction with you in today's world i have to create the transaction with you and then also reconcile that, reconcile it with my my books as well right Um, when you put these types of transactions onto the blockchain you can think of it as i always have access to that data and i always own that data so when i'm making the transaction i'm essentially making it with myself anyways Mm -hmm. so i don't have to have that off book reconciliation to it that makes sense yeah
0: yeah and and, you know one of the (laughs) just hearing that you know one of the problems with the public blockchain is uh how much energy it consumes in general that, uh, you know, and and how slow the transactions are. And because you have so many nodes on the network and because there's so much going on and and that the algorithms are are proof of work, which is just so computationally intensive, that's one of the big problems with blockchain in that kind of a situation. But if you're in a private situation, a lot of those go away. You have fewer actors on the network and
1: you you don't need to worry about that. So, you know, it's one
0: of you know, it Perfect. actually makes a lot more sense in that way.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Like, proof of work is uh, computationally just very expensive. Um, and I think, didn't you call it, like, proof of luck?
0: Oh, did I? I okay. didn't, but that's I a good like
1: one. It might have, I'm <laughs> going to give that one to you. Um, okay. Because, right, the whole way that it works is you basically try a number, and then hopefully the hash works out that you get, oh, right. you know, a series of zeros. Um, and you just constantly do this work, but you 're just playing the lottery every single time right. um, and that does help you know make the, the system secure uh, but what we 're seeing now and i'm i 'm working with a few i 'm working with a few partners who have you know built out massive massive data farms of GPUs in order to capitalize on these these opportunities of mining um, and it's extremely cool, but I think it adds a little bit of a, a centralized aspect to it, um, which is right. which is unique. And I think there's going to be another form of centralization, like Ethereum is switching over to uh, a proof of stake right. type of consensus mechanism, where you know you can deposit your Ethereum to validate the transactions in the network, um, and you receive a fee for doing that as well, which is something that will help reduce the the electrical footprint, as well as increase the throughput of these networks. Uh, Another interesting idea out there is a framework called Holochain. Um, Holochain is, it gets lumped in with blockchain, but it's entirely different. Uh, And I'll come back to that one, because another one to touch on is uh, what's going on with telegrams. Uh, well they' raised i think it was like four billion dollars in an i c o or no <laughs> Wow, it was like just it might have been two billion or four billion um there's another company that also raised four billion in an i c o and I think another four billion in an equity raise right after the i c o uh, so but what telegram's doing is they 're looking to basically recreate the internet on the blockchain uh and so their white paper outlined a few ideas for how they could go about in you know scaling blockchain solutions uh and it's either through you know improving con- consensus mechanisms so that they are faster but then also enabling the blockchain to to shard and create you know essentially divergent paths of an original chain that at a later date would be merged back together um and so those could help actually improve the throughput of it on a public side. Where Holochain is interesting is, if you look at how blockchain uh, creates one set of data that all the actors are actively trying to validate and prove to be the correct version, Um, and so it's got a very data-centric approach to it, a Holochain and the Holochain framework creates a very agent-centric, so instead of validating, well, you are validating that the data is correct when you make a transaction and that the previous data going into that was valid as well. You're more in tune in validating the actual agents involved with it. Hmm. Uh, and so each agent carries a reputation with them. They carry uh, you know, other metadata that allows you to know that this is a, a valid agent that you can perform transaction with. And so you and this other agent perform the transaction, and then what the network does is randomly chooses a third party that also gets involved in the transaction so that they can be that central, and not centralized, but decentralized validation. Uh, And what this allows you to do is basically uh, have a very flexible scaling program or profile Hmm. to it. Since every transaction only requires three parties, and yet every transaction is also uh, you can search and discover within, I think it's log of n steps. So it's a rather effective search algorithm as well yeah. uh, to the point of where your data is at.
0: Right. As as opposed to, you know, and, you know, the, the number of uh, actors that, that have to work through Bitcoin is, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. more than exponential. Um that's really interesting. You know, another, another thing you were talking about was uh, with AI, the, the need for GPUs. And then with crypto, the, the way that a lot of those, uh, the, the crypto is calculated is with GPUs as well. And I, I think it's really, and it'll be interesting if um, the, the current flock of uh, coins falls away and there are all these people with these very high powered GPU mining rigs that then have nothing to do with them, they could then be repurposed for AI. It seems like, uh, you know, even, even today, if you were to create a coin that tokenized AI computation, you'd actually be doing something useful with those GPUs as opposed to, you know, having them sit there and, and do the same hash functions over and over. So I wonder if you see that there's a possibility of, of those two markets melding a little bit
1: oh yeah yeah no i absolutely agree with you that um one of the things that's going to hurt the the growth of crypto is is the speed and also the electrical consumption right and so right. as you pointed out people are buying up gpus in order to to mine currency um it's done it's it's wrecked the gpu market uh eh, can't really say wrecked it but <laughs> Like Nvidia stock and AMD stock is just shooting through the roof, or at least it has been um, right. over the past few years, because there is such a, a shortage of supply of GPUs. Uh and I know when we're working on AI projects, if we're building rigs to do that specifically, uh we're we're paying above MSRP for used cards. Uh right. and that's how like the shortage is really impacting everybody. Um, but I do see it as a an opportunity for, for uh cryptocurrency miners to get into distributed computing and AI uh you know essentially running models on these rigs that they've set up after you know the the market for crypto dies down and maybe that is the opportunity to create a, an AI currency that allows you to essentially use somebody else's computing power for that purpose uh and trading it off for the you know either hard fiat or another crypto.
0: Yeah, it'd be really, you know, it would be very interesting because then you (laughs) could conceivably have an artificial intelligence that is being paid money to exist. (laughs) You (laughs) know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, You know, it it does feel like, you know, there, there are fewer people and there are fewer human beings involved in that transaction, which is sort of strange. It's like, oh, here's an AI, literally, that is giving money away. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like there's a lot, you know, there's so much interesting stuff that happens at that intersection. Um, but it, it's, it, there's still so many things that are going to change and that are hard to foresee. Um, so do you foresee, uh, you know, just, <laughs> I just said it's hard, but, you know, um, do, do you foresee a, a kind of collapse of those, the coins that aren't used for a utility that just are there to do those proof of work uh algorithms or do you think that there's some staying power there for for instance uh specifically bitcoin doesn't really do anything except uh run through those sha256 hashes and it's you know point i think it was like point two percent of global power is going to Solving nonsense equations, which is sort of, <laughs> you know, sort of disturbing. So, so, um, you know, do you see that falling away, or do you see that there's some intrinsic value to Bitcoin?
1: I, oh, all right. So there's, I guess, two questions laden in there, right? <laughs> um, do I see, do I see there being the um, the electrical consumption going away. And I would have to say that an environmentally conscious consumer is more likely to be shifting their their crypto into a coin that is responsibly using the electricity. Um, I, I also think we'll end up finding that there are better consensus mechanisms out there. Uh, as these applications scale and I got to give it props. Bitcoin, you know, was originally released as a proof of concept and here we are, what, 10 years later
0: Um,
1: and it's going strong, like absolutely fantastic. Um, Excited to see what Ethereum does. And then also what the guys at uh, Holochain are doing and the, um, both ethos and Ethereum, um, to see where where they're taking it, because all of those projects have a lot of legs to them uh, and can definitely shift uh the consumption of power and the consumption of uh of resources away from the network um, along the lines of oh sorry the sorry, I forgot the second question
0: oh uh oh God. i i might also forget but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, was, yeah I was wondering if um if uh you you thought that um bitcoin has legs and if it i mean, i think you already answered that's you know i, I think yeah, yeah.
1: i um, i think i'm kind of surprised by it right like yeah but i, I also think that it's i'm so close to the technology that I, I want to see, like, a better technological solution went out, whereas Bitcoin just happened to be, like, the first to market. And I always give people the example of, like, VHS and Betamax. Um, Betamax was, like, a far superior technology, but VHS ended up getting, like, the first, uh, first early adopters advantage and right. it just ended up kicking out Betamax from the rest of the industry.
0: Right. Yeah, it it is, uh, you know, you get there first to market and you get name recognition. And uh, also, you know, the the network, the fact that the Bitcoin network is so big, it's much more difficult to game theoretically. Uh, May or may not be true, but it's (laughs) it's it's just interesting stuff. Um, So, you know, uh, the the market that's out there uh, is is very large um i i somewhat asked this but but in terms of the the um your place inside of the crypto market what are you excited about maybe in the future what could be your ne- maybe not your next big play but what is a big play that you see out there that's exciting And you don't
1: have to answer. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a <laughs> good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a really good yeah. question. Um, I think I, in general, I'm excited to see how. I'm excited to be surprised. I I think is is where it's at. A lot of like the easy problems or the easy areas that um, a decentralized network helps supply chain management. Um, some information management pieces, you know the ability for everybody to keep on the same page. that's great. What I'm looking forward to seeing is like what are the the non-obvious solutions? Um, can we reinvent social networking outside of key environments? Can we reinvent how email is handled uh, or communication is done? without having a central party that is responsible for that. Um, I think those are the areas that will be, um, I'm open to really any of these things occurring and wanna see it. Uh, And I think it's gonna have a huge social impact on us as well. Uh, Talking with people who are deeply involved in the in the decentralization aspect of blockchain, um, they're they're truly driven by a social good and a like an understanding that they can help a lot of people. And even though it won't make them the next uh, Bill Gates, they still want to be a driving force of that. And actually, they they almost don't want to be in that situation, but they do want to add that much value back to the world.
0: Right. Well yeah I mean just talking about crypto a lot of people like to malign cryptocurrency because it it doesn't have intrinsic value but it can help people especially people who are unbanked who uh feel that you know they can't trust institutions and you know people in the developing world who need a value store and can't get one there is there is social good that can be done through crypto um is there any you know do you, do you see that as well do you see other uh aspects of the world that could be uh, you know, benefit ordinary people with crypto.
1: Oh yeah, yeah no, I absolutely agree with those uh, that value statement. That you know, there's the the unbanked, the the people who have been forgotten, the shifting kind of um, inequality that can help be addressed by you know these crypto programs. Um, I haven't given up on you know, traditional banks and traditional uh, avenues for that help as well. Uh, In fact, I can't tell you the names of any of these players, but I'm I'm working with a bank right now and they're launching a branded checking account with a, a Fortune 100 company. And their target market is the unbanked and millennials. And so they're using the relationship of the fortune 100 company that consumers have in order to help reduce the credit risk of the checking product. Uh, and so it allows them to offer a no fee solution that is truly no fee to the consumer, um, out there. And hopefully they can, they can help to bring more people into our financial system. Uh, cause that just has, I, I wish I remembered the numbers off the top of my head, but. Even just having a checking account helps increase your wealth.
0: Right. Well, and, and you know, in, in terms of uh, growing, developing uh, economies, the opportunity to actually have a stable economy, at least in terms of e-commerce, has to do with having a checking account and, and a way to yeah. pay for things online. And so, you know, that this really could help those developing nations and developing economies to become powerhouses, that you know, it's almost overnight. You have a way for people to get into having money or having value and being able to purchase things online that absolutely couldn't do it before. So I, I find it exciting. I I really think that uh, some of this stuff can really uh, allow for more growth in um, some of those developing nations, and it's a good thing. <laughs> it's just it's a real good thing for people, and I I, I am you know I. I I'm bullish on that about the ability for, for these things to help people. So let's Exactly. Hope. <laughs> um,
1: and I, I think you kinda of hit on it though. It's it's that it gives it competition, right? So a blockchain solution, a crypto solution in the in a developed country creates competition for the in, embedded forces. In uh right. in a developing country, it gives another option. Um and then I the other thing I, I touch on is With cryptos, you know, we may not need Bitcoin in the United States, right? We have the dollar. We have everything that goes, you know, and surrounds the dollar to protect the value of that. But if I was living in Syria, I can't even tell you what their currency is, unfortunately. But in the same light, I may not want to have my currency or my wealth tied up into something that is, you know, almost ready to go or in control of somebody that I, I may not trust. And so it gives the, the people the power to be able to move their assets into something that is you know, uncontrolled by really anybody else or any other foreign government. Uh, and so that power uh, acts as another check on the existing power structures that are today. So creating competition uh, in this world for you know, where value is held and, and who has control of it gives I think people a, another option What's really gotten me interested is like how ideas actually spread right. Um and How people are getting their ideas out there? Uh, there's a a book called trust me. I'm lying. I don't know if you've read it It's uh, by Ryan holiday, and it was written back in like 2013 mm-hmm. But do you remember a movie called Tucker Max? I hope they serve you yeah. here now. Yeah. yeah Okay, so do you remember the news coverage that was uh, surrounding that movie?
0: Uh, maybe, (laughs) I'm not sure.
1: A bunch of like, uh, a bunch of groups were basically speaking out about it because he's sexist. He's, you know, um, a homophobe and actually I don't think he was a homophobe, but I think he was just a misogynist. Yeah. And like, it was all about like how all the coverage was like, how dare they show this movie? It's terrible. Um, and what ended up happening was it all got triggered because somebody ended up, spray painting one of his billboards and then multiple people sent an email to the same blogger to say hey you should be covering this because we've seen it out there that blogger covers it and then some more people send that bloggers piece over to another publication about how they should be covering it and then a couple of days later it's on the news. The original graffiti was done by Ryan Holiday. <laughs> He was the marketing guy for Tucker Max. Yeah, he created the controversy, and right. then just basically triggered other people to carry it on. Because as soon as it happened in L.A. and it made national news, people around the country then started tagging and defiling uh, the the billboards for Tucker Max. And so they started putting them in places so that it'd be easier for people to <laughs> tag them. And so it just kept on snowballing into more and more news, more and more publicity, and just more and more, like, it it was more and more coverage for something that never would have gotten any coverage if it didn't have the controversy around it. Right. And it was all fabricated. (laughs) And so it was, it it
0: began began as a fabrication then and then grew in an organic way.
1: But he lit a fire. Yeah. He, yeah, he lit a fire that is essentially a non-existent thing. People would have just been going on on their, you know, in their life, but he was like, "I have a little bit of a budget, and I need to get a lot of press." So here's how he does it. Now it comes out he's also he after he wrote the book or after he did Tucker Max, he went on to become American Apparel's director of marketing, oh. in which he uses some of the same tactics. And then while he's in that position, he also sees other people using the same tactics against him. And he writes the book as a step-by-step guide, but he also writes it under the like, he's like, I hope people in the industry pick this up and realize the problem of the industry. And that this is just going to continue and it's just going to continue to move on in this fashion unless we address it.
0: So. well that it kind of dovetails into the whole fake news thing and you know being yeah. able to actually source things correctly and not just via backlinks and you know, it's like exactly you know, figuring out what the actual original source is and, and is this being game, it's hard.
1: It's <laughs> oh, an yeah. easy thing to do. Oh, it is I mean, incredibly
0: difficult. Know, it's interesting that you know, when when the World Wide Web was um was originally conceived, they didn't Code in backlinks, so that means that you know for to know where something came from, you had to crawl it and that's what Google got their power from was was crawling back and, and figuring out the backlinks and what linked to what and had they just decided at that time that uh, when you link to something they have to know about it, the entire world would be different, not to say better or worse, but you know we we'd have more of a sort of uh semantic framework for what the web is. And right now we don't have that. <laughs> we have this weird kind of uh, you know, it it doesn't it has to be created. It's not endemic to what the um to what the framework is. And it's like we made that one decision and now here we are, where well, we don't know where the content came from. And it's like, is it better in some ways? Because it, it's more available for entrepreneurs and it's You know, there's fewer requirements for it, but also, you know, it it makes it worse. So I don't know. It's it's kind of crazy, you know, what one little decision like that can make and how now that's influencing like elections. And, you know, it's sort of the world we're living in is is a byproduct of that. Exactly. Right. Well, I I feel like I've. Uh, taking a lot of your time, and I, I really appreciate you talking with me. Um, and I, I, before we go, you know, uh, I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to talk about FinDustries and, and what it is that you do, and uh, sort of uh, tell us about, you know, uh, how you are, you know, working in this marketplace and, and uh, making changes through your company
1: yeah no um so at industries we're uh we're a custom software development agency uh we mostly work with uh established companies that have a technology problem that they may not know how to solve or they have an idea for how they can take their existing products uh, and bring them to a, another solution so we we work with um working in financial services automotive manufacturing um, and a few other industries that we've touched on, payment systems uh, as well. And so we help these companies identify how they can take their existing product lines and, and bring it into a higher tech space uh, or by taking the information that they have there today and helping them make, a, I don't want to say, I want to say smarter decisions, but that's not really, it's about them gaining more information out of the data that they have. So how do you turn data into knowledge? And then how do you act upon that? Uh, And so we help them, you know, expand their product lines, expand their information as well. But uh, yeah, and whether that's using uh, artificial intelligence blockchain or, you know, standard run-of-the-mill web app, mobile app development, uh, that's what we help out on. Uh, And then I'm also available to help startups and figuring out their technology path. Uh, and how they can get their products to market
0: nice yeah I, I I can tell you you've got a lot on your plate, so it's it's uh, <laughs> it's good. It's a good thing. It's always better to be busy exactly. All right well, you know Don, thank you uh, thank you for talking to me. I really appreciate uh, you spending the time. Um, and I was uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. thanks,
1: definitely, Dedre. It was a great meeting last time and excellent that we got a chance to catch up again. So thanks for setting this up and getting this going.
0: All right. Don Finley, thank you very much. That's our show. I'd like to thank Don Finley for speaking with us and I'd like to thank our sponsor, Green Lane Design. Uh, Remember to mention the Good Data Podcast if you talk to them. Our music is algorithmically created by Juke Deck. Still can't believe that. Uh, just try it yourself at com. For Good Data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast.